Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Good morning. Good morning. It is, whew, it's the 16th of November. I'm Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Let's talk about accounting for time today. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had to account for your time, like a time clock or, you know, clocking in, clocking out, accounting for time? Maybe you are uh, the kind of person who has to account for every minute or every 15 minutes. What does it look like to account for time? What would an accounting of time look like for yesterday? What if we just took yesterday and said, you know what, let's account for our time. How much time did we spend doing this or that or the other thing? I'm going to talk for a minute about wasted time. Time keeps on slipping into the future. This is not something that is a mystery to any of us. Um, I mean, does it feel like uh, time is moving faster and faster Like, does it feel like you just took your Christmas tree down and now there are conversations about putting up a Christmas tree? Um, Do the years feel like they move faster and faster the older you get? They do for me. Like, time does feel like it passes more quickly. I mean, remember when you were a kid and, like, you were, like, waiting for Christmas break and it felt like it took forever? Now, you know, the holidays are upon us. So, time wasted. Uh, I tried to do a little accounting for time for us this morning and account for time wasted on busy work, time wasted ensuring that processes and products conform to guidelines and regulations. There's actually a lot of content out there about how much time uh, businesses and particularly small businesses feel like they waste, time wasted on regulations that they feel like uh, prove meaningless in the end. How much time is wasted traveling to and from Meetings that could have been emails. Mm -hmm. How much time have you wasted in meetings that could have been emails? Mm -hmm. This is a good question. How about wasted time on social media? That is a huge issue. All right. It's uh, it's at a minimum a couple of hours every day. But for many young people, it is uh, up to 10 hours a day that they actually spend active on social media. And you say, well, how are they doing anything else? Well, it's not that they're not doing anything else. It's that they are not doing anything with their full attention. Social media is always literally running in the background uh, and sometimes in the foreground. And you can imagine how interrupted they are, not only in their sleep and in their conversations and in their studies. Um, They can't pay full attention to anything because they're paying at least half attention to social media. That is wasted time. How how about uh, time spent in traffic or standing in line? Now that, I would argue, does not have to be wasted time. You could be using the time in line or the time in traffic for actually a good and godly purpose. But some of these other things are genuinely just wasted time. Uh, So how about this? How much time is wasted over senseless controversies? (laughs) How much time is wasted arguing over senseless controversies? Our Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Do not waste time arguing 
over godless ideas or old wives tales. I I don't want to offend old wives. And so, I mean, I'm an old wife, so I don't want to offend us. So don't waste time arguing over godless ideas or senseless controversies. Instead, train yourself to be godly. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. So what does it mean? What does it look like to spend our time well training in godliness? Train yourself to be godly. That's what this passage says. So what does that look like? Well, that's discipleship. Training for godliness, um, training yourself to be godly is discipleship. It is a view of time from God's eternal perspective. It's a view of ourselves from God's perspective. It's the way that the eternal is brought to bear in the everyday. It is life as an acronym, living in faith every day and in every way. Life, L-I-F-E, living in faith every day, in every way. So what does training in godliness include? Training implies that it doesn't just happen uh, magically or even miraculously. Training implies a plan. It implies the execution of a plan. It includes time management, setting aside a time, protecting time to spend intentionally, training. So training in godliness includes setting aside and protecting time to spend intentionally with the Lord, in his word, with his Holy Spirit, listening, learning, obeying. Training in godliness includes how we live at home, where and how we work, what and how much we eat, what else we put in our bodies, um, what media we consume, what we post. It includes our intake of the word and our life of worship, including times of silence while we listen for and to the Lord. If you've ever entered into a training regimen of any kind, um, you know the value of keeping a record, keeping uh, maybe a journal. Have you ever kept a food journal or a sleep journal, a water, like a record of your water or an exercise journal. So in your physical training, in training the physical body, keeping a record of food, water, sleep, and exercise, that's about calories and nutrients in and fat and toxins out. So what might a journal of training and godliness include? Time in the word? You're soaking in or taking in the living water? Rest and Sabbath time? Um, to take in the things of God, exercising your faith to build muscles of stewardship, service, sacrifice, building up the body in love. What does training yourself to be godly look like? And do you have a plan? Or are you just wasting time? First Timothy 4, 7 and 8, do not waste time arguing over godless ideas or senseless controversies. Instead, train yourself to be godly. Physical training is good. But training for godliness is even better, promising benefits not only in this life, but in the life to come. So we're going to talk with our friend, uh, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith, here in just a moment about what in the world is going on in terms of the behavior among some members um, of the U.S. Congress. This verse, let me just tell you, this is a verse that members of Congress need to hear and take in today. Um, This has been a week of particularly poor behavior incivility among the members of the U.S. House. And so what happens to civility when there is a coarsening of public discourse? Like how has the deterioration of civility, like how is that affecting us? What might we 
um, as God's agents of redemptive change, how might we respond in the days in which we live? Like, how might God use us? What if we started to give people what they do not expect? What if we started to give people grace and patience and love? Yeah, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Our friend Dr. Mark Caleb Smith is back. He is the Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at Cedarville University. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Carmen. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good. It's not okay to jab somebody uh, in the kidney as you pass them in the hallway. It's not okay to uh, try to get somebody to stand up and fight you uh, in the middle of a Senate hearing. Like, what, what in the world is going on uh, in the U.S. Congress? Uh, Carmen, you're just, you're just being a prude. I mean, come on. You don't want to, you don't want some cuffs taking place okay. in the middle of so the city here or no, so you don't want like a world wrestling no. federation move occurring in the lobby of Congress. Nothing no. like that. No, no, it's not like a fight cage. No, <laughs> it's designed to be a place of like positive, productive public discourse. Is it not? I mean, aren't they supposed to be demonstrating how to engage in civil conversation and come to resolution with other like thinking people who care about the country? Like, isn't that what we're supposed to see and hear in Congress? Uh, for sure. I mean, for sure it is. And that's what that's the ideal. Uh, you know, we would love to see our members of Congress coming together and having good, good faith arguments, reasonable disagreements with one another and attempting to forge some sort of compromise as they look out for the public good. Um and, you know, I think if we're fair, I think most members of Congress still probably feel that way for the most part. You know, that's what they're trying to do. We might disagree with their motives sometimes. We might not agree with the policy outcome. But I think most of them really are trying to to do the job that they've been sent there to do. Um, but there's certainly a slice of Congress right now um, on both sides of the aisle, but it's probably more pronounced at the moment on the right that is uh that's they're there for different reasons um they're there to get attention uh they're there to prove their masculinity perhaps um they're there to stave off a primary challenger and that's really all they're worried about and so for some of them they've kind of put aside legislating they've put aside uh, making a mark on policy um and they're going for something else uh, it's performance it's outrage. It's going viral. It's getting a certain kind of attention on the online community. Um, that's clearly what many of them are motivated by. And it's a little disturbing to watch. I'll just say that, you know, I just real quickly, you probably remember, you're old enough to remember. Um, there is a famous book a while ago called everything I needed to know. I learned in kindergarten. Yes. Um, and it seems like some of these folks just didn't attend kindergarten, right? They didn't learn the basics, how to stand in a line, how to communicate with each other, how to be respectful toward one another. Um, and that's just, it just seems to be absent for many of these people. And it is disturbing. All right. All I need to know, I learned in kindergarten, uh, that would be Robert Fulgham. Um, yep. That was a number of years ago. If you've never read it, uh, Mark is right. There there are things that we learned in kindergarten that... Um, you know, sharing, um, waiting your turn, standing in line, playing fair, don't hit people, put right, things back where right. you found them, clean up your own mess, don't take things that aren't your, yours, say you're sorry when you hurt someone else, wash your hands before you eat. Here's one, flush. Yeah. <laughs> 
take a nap every afternoon? Yeah. Um, I like Not these, though. I, I like this one. Wonder. Wonder. Yeah. This is good. Yeah. Wonder. Um, yes, uh, members of Congress would be well served to uh, review the principles of, of books like um, All I Ever Really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. They'd also do well to review, um, you know, principles of basic Christian discourse and the way we are uh, called to treat one another in public. And so maybe uh, as we encourage one another today, Mark, um, what what do we do? How do we engage when we have... Um, when we have maybe a conflict with somebody on social media, because that's how the the particular issue in the uh, in the hearing in the Senate, that's really where it started. Right. There was a, there were right. apparently these you know social media um, exchanges over time, and then these two people actually came face to face in a room. Um, how 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 should we handle that? How should we handle it when somebody has said something ugly about us or to us on social media, and then we do see them face to face? Yeah, I, I think when we look at Christ as an example, uh, you see how this can be a pretty complicated set of questions in many ways. Um, I don't think it's the kind of thing where you just have one answer to that to that question. Uh, I don't think it's always the right thing in every situation, uh, for example, to confront the person, yeah. um, even though it may feel right to do that. And um, it may be psychically positive for you, but it may not be the best outcome. And it's not always the right thing to turn the other cheek necessarily in the sense that you don't let it go un- unconfronted or dealt with at some level. Um, I think when you look at Christ, sometimes you see him speaking hard truths to people and they may be hypocritical. Uh, they may be evil and they may be masking some things that are that are actually uh, dangerous. And he speaks directly to that and makes them uncomfortable in the process. But we also see Christ approaching people very gently at times and being very patient with them and understanding uh, where they're coming from in order to confront maybe some sin in their life that they need to deal with. And so I think knowing when to strike which kind of pose uh, takes a lot of emotional understanding. It takes a lot of understanding of the person you're talking to. Um, And so some of this really, that's why it makes me nervous when you talk about social media interaction that leads to a face-to-face confrontation, because social media is such a deceptive environment. It lacks context. It lacks, it's it's very difficult to interpret and fully understand what people mean in social media. And often on social media, people say whatever they want without a filter because they just don't care. Whereas face-to-face, they may be a very different person. And I I, that's a problem, I think, of social media, but you have to understand face-to-face, it may take a very different response to actually reach through to that person. But I think when you look at Christ, you see that the goal in all those interactions is to bring this person into the kingdom of God. That's the goal. And so you have to figure out what's the best approach to bringing this person into the kingdom of God. Is it confronting the truth of this particular moment, or is it being more gentle and patient? And that takes a lot of wisdom. Um but it, more than anything, it takes a, a basic belief that this person is a child of God and they're in need of, of salvation. And that's the starting point. And certainly in our politics right now, that's not the starting point in these engagements whatsoever. So when we come back from a very brief break, I have a quick story to tell you about um, a time when I actually met in person a, uh, an individual who had been attacking me um, 
uh, I'd never met them, but they'd been attacking me on social media. And then I had occasion to actually meet them face to face. So I'll tell that quick story when we come back. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith is here with us. He's the dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at Cedarville University. And you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. As we consider the life of Jesus and the life of the first generation of Christians, reading here the book of Acts and all the letters to the Christians in the New Testament, we see people who like wake up, they come to see and understand and then receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And it changes everything. We see Christians then telling other people about the good news and inviting them to respond in repentance, be baptized and follow Jesus. The movement of Christianity grows person by person and then exponentially as people walking in darkness receive the light of Christ and want others to know what they know and have what they have. Well, you and I are living in dark days. People need light. And Jesus is the light of the world today in the same way that he was the light of the world at the beginning of creation and at the first Christmas and throughout his life on earth and in his radiance now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the light of the world. So if you're walking in darkness of any kind today, I invite you to consider Jesus. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. All right, we're having a conversation about civility and maybe even how to diffuse um, a situation instead of throw fuel on it and puff up our chest and try to get people to fight with us. So uh, a number of years ago now, um, and Mark Caleb Smith is here with us, so I'm really having this conversation with him, but you know, you're here too. So let's just all talk amongst ourselves for a moment. Um, This would be like 2012-ish. And I had been um, the subject of no small amount of uh, negative barbs um, aimed at me from folks who disagreed with a position that I was taking in regard to Um, human identity and sexuality and marriage, none of which would surprise you because you know me. And so I had been taking those positions consistently. um, And there was a particular individual who not only disagreed with me, but represented a whole group of people who disagreed with me. And she had taken out after me on social media pretty aggressively and very personally. Um, But I'd never met her. And then I had occasion to meet her. And so I saw her at this event in New York and I think this was 2012. And I and I I found her on social media where this engagement had been, I mean engagement, where this attack had been taking place. And so I pulled up her profile on my phone and I walked over to her and I said, "Hi. Is this you?" And I showed her her own social media page and you know her face went slightly ashen, but she said, "Yes." And I put out my arms and I said, "I'm Carmen. You follow me on here." Like, put out my arms, like, as if to hug her. She recoiled, which, no, it was not hugely surprising. And and then I said, I would really like to get to know you because the things that you're saying about me on here are absolutely not true. And I don't know why you think these things about me. I don't know why you believe these things to be true. But I would like to give you the opportunity to actually get to know me um, because I have found these things very, very hurtful. Now, um, she did not accept really that uh, that opportunity but i felt way better i felt way better 
So it was my way of um, not taking uh, the barbs that she had intended to wound me, not taking them into myself, and also really providing an opportunity for her to get to know me if she really wanted to, which clearly she didn't. So that would be my personal example, my story. Yeah, I have actually similar stories sometimes. Um, I've given speeches, uh, written things that people have had very strong opinions about and um, have had similar opportunities, not quite as dramatic as yours, um, but I have entered into discussions with people. I had one very, very long meeting with someone who was highly critical uh, where we had a co- we, we had just coffee for over an hour where they just had questions and mm. it went very well. You know, they were open minded about it and we had a good conversation. But, man, um, those are those are difficult situations. But I think it's almost always better to try to engage in good faith and see what happens. But at that point, as you as your story indicates, at that point, it's on them. You know, you've made a good faith effort to try to repair things. At that point, it's up to them to make the decision to move forward or not. Well, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I am uh, totally willing to make other people uncomfortable. So there you go. Um, Let's talk a little bit about uh, something that has happened in Ohio that has made a lot of people uncomfortable. Um, Issue, issue one, we have not had occasion to talk with you since this vote took place. And so um, if you'll just remind people, what is issue one and maybe share some of your, uh, your thoughts related to it. Sure. Now, issue one, uh, last week uh, in Ohio, we voted on um, whether or not to enshrine a pro-choice position in the Ohio Constitution. Um, issue one is a little bit broader than that, but that's probably at least a reasonable summary of it. Uh, there's a lot of argument over how extensive it actually would be in practice. but um, And it passed by, what, 13 or 14 percentage points. And so it really was not a close uh, issue vote whatsoever. Um the pro-choice position outspent the pro-life position about three to one, and uh, the advertising certainly reflected that, and the outcome certainly reflected that as well. Uh, Ohio is a pretty red state on the whole. You know, Donald Trump won Ohio by I think eight percentage points last time, and uh, Republicans control virtually all of state government except the U.S. one U.S. Senate seat is held by a Democrat in Ohio, and so. Uh, We're a conservative state by most measures, but uh, conservatism wasn't enough to push a pro-life approach over the finish line. And I, you know, Carmen, I don't know how what your feeling is about all this, because this is unfolding, I think, all around us. But I suspect that Ohio, if Ohio voted in a pro-choice direction, then I think other states will probably vote in that direction as well. Um, and so I think Midwestern states, I think even some of the Southern states, maybe not the deep South states, but some of the Southern states are probably going to visit this issue through a, an amendment process, perhaps, or through a popular vote. And I think the Republican Party is divided on it. You know, if exit polls are correct, about one in every five Republicans uh, in Ohio that voted, voted for issue one, voted to enshrine a pro-choice position. And that's, that means the party's divided enough that it's going to be a significant issue. And if it's an issue here in Ohio, it's going to be an issue elsewhere. Yeah, I, I, I am not surprised. I am right. that I maybe I am that person who recognizes that behind that curtain, behind that closed door, in that voting, yes. in that voting space, people are brutally honest. Um, yes. And and standing before God, who knows just how many abortions have been 
uh, have taken place in the United States of America and just how many people have been party to those abortions, not just the women who have had the abortion or experienced the abortion, but the men who and the and the other women, the moms, the grandmas, the employers, the doctors, the nurses, like there's a lot of folks. Um, and I and I don't say this with cruelty. I say this with honesty. There are a lot of people in America with abortion blood on their hands. A lot. Yeah. And so you're not going to go into the polling booth and vote against yourself. You're not going to go in there and say what I did was wrong. You're just not. And you're not. And so any time I expect every time this actually comes to the point where Americans get to go behind a closed curtain and vote on this. I expect every single time for it to come out the way it did in Ohio, because we're out, out in front of other people. We can say whatever we want about um, our, you know, our intellectual or even our spiritual sense of what abortion is, and it is murder, and what it accomplishes, and and who's responsible. And then when we go in there, we're not going to vote against our own right or the or to do what we have in our lives done. Either we ourselves or someone we know and love. Everyone in America has an abortion story if they're if they're actually honest about it. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that means the future then for the pro-life movement is much more complicated than many pro-lifers, including myself, thought. Um, this is a generational process of persuading people. And it. I hope that it's possible and we should work. We should work to make it possible. Um, but this is not going to happen through any sort of a quick process, I don't think. And I suspect that means the Republican Party is going to start to shift its position on this issue. And so you're going to see more of a moderation approach, I think, you know, arguments for things like a 15 week ban as opposed to a six week ban or a heartbeat bill, for example. So uh, we'll see. But I think this is a long, drawn out process for the pro-life movement. Well, and if Virginia is any indication, people aren't interested in a 15 week ban. That's So I I just it's um, Yeah. yeah, it's an incredibly complex issue. If you're listening right now and. You have an abortion story. Um, it is something that you regret. I recognize that. Um, we talk about it frequently. There are ministries available. I want you to avail yourself of those. Um, you're not alone, um, and it's not unforgivable. But it, but it is something that we have to deal with as an issue of sin, not just as an issue of um, what works best for me right now and the and my sense of the goals or pursuits that I have in my life. Like it's not. It's not about you. It is about the baby. And until we get to the place where we really understand what it is and what we're doing, it won't become unthinkable. And until it becomes unthinkable, it's not going to become illegal. It's just not. Not 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 in the United States of America. So I do think the pro-life movement has to make a massive shift. And how do we move from where we are today to the point in time where abortion is unthinkable in America? That's um that's my hope. That's my that's my aspirational goal. Um, Mark, we got to leave it right there. Thank you so much, as always, um, for joining us. Thank you for being with us in these conversations and for um, the way you press us forward. Thank you, Carmen. Uh, Have a good break. Yeah, thanks so much. All right. In Luke chapter 24, um, one of my my favorite resurrection appearances of Jesus takes place. Um, I call it the walk to Emmaus. Um, you, you might have a different language for it. Uh, but Jesus actually seeks out two disciples who, you know, they've they've left uh, they've left Jerusalem. They are headed to Emmaus. Um, Jesus seeks them out. He goes out to find them. 
they are in the midst of a conversation. Um, they are disappointed. They are grieving and they are identified as disciples. And they said, well, we had hoped we had hoped that this Jesus um, was the one. Um, and then Jesus is like, wait, isn't that exactly what God said would happen? I mean, isn't that exactly what the old, what we would call the Old Testament, what the scriptures say? Isn't that what the prophets foretold? And then Jesus says this, was it not necessary? Was it not necessary? Just think about that for just a moment. Now, eventually, Luke describes how their eyes were opened at the breaking of the bread. And I imagine that their minds rushed back to the events the night before Jesus' crucifixion, where they sat at what we call the Last Supper, um, Jesus had told them in advance and they had missed it. How could they have failed to see? But now they see, and that's when they rush back um, to, uh, to seek out the other disciples to say what? We have seen the Lord. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Glory. Hallelujah. They can't wait to tell others. Jesus is alive. So the Old Testament is filled, filled with evidence of the Savior whom we now await in the season of Advent. Awaiting the manger, whispers of Advent in the Old Testament. That's up next with Oceana Fleiss. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. What fun to be welcoming today, Oceana Fleiss. Um, She is an author. She's a wife. She's a mom. She lives in the northwestern part of the beautiful United States, and she's joining us today with a book entitled Awaiting the Manger, Whispers of Advent in the Old Testament. Oceana, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for having me. All right. I think I want to start with this. Take us on the walk to Emmaus in Luke 24. Oh, I love that you asked that. That's so awesome. Yeah, that's where the book really starts, right up at the front, and even before the contents, uh, I put that verse down. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, Luke 24, 27. So many years ago, probably 25, I don't know, 30 years ago, I had grown up learning a lot about the Bible and a lot about the Old Testament and the New Testament, and I had gone to Bible school and lots of church events and internships and things like that, and I had really read the Bible a lot, and by my 20s, I thought, wow, I think I know everything there is to know about the Bible, (laughs) and um, (laughs) I, I just, honestly, I was starting to get a little bored with it even, which is just a terrible thing to happen. And a friend of mine came alongside and she said, hey, you know, um, there might be more to the Bible than you think. And she showed me that verse and other verses like it that show that the Old Testament isn't just a bunch of you know, moral stories or examples to follow, although it can be that. But the deeper level that I, I really loved was that Jesus himself says that the Old Testament points to him. It says he started with Moses, which is talking about the Pentateuch, the beginning of the Bible, through the prophets, which is the rest of the Old Testament. And he went through and he told them all it was about himself. Uh, And so that was really sparked a a light in me and set me on a journey of really studying the Bible for the rest of my life and giving up the idea that I would ever actually know everything there is to know. 
So for someone um, right now who might imagine that, you know what, they've read the Bible. They've been through this. They've mm-hmm. been, um, you know, they, they've done Advent. Like, we've done the lead up to Christmas. <laughs> Invite us into the 25 days of Advent as a fresh and new opportunity to really watch for Jesus, to to look for him, particularly in these passages from the Old Testament. Mm. That's such a beautiful way to put it, Carmen. I really appreciate that looking for Jesus, it does make it fresh. As uh, as I said, when you when you read the Old Testament with that in mind, like how is Jesus in this story, or how is Jesus in this story, and also the story of redemption? How is Jesus' love shown through here? How is the problem of sin and the answer of Christ's death and resurrection and atonement? Um, how is that shown through these stories? It just comes to life layer upon layer upon layer. And it takes, um, if, if you've been like accustomed to the Bible and you know it for so well and you think, oh, I've read it before, that makes it a never ending story. I mean, Hebrews talks about it being living and active and sharper than any two edged sword. It's never stops being new and fresh, especially for me, at least when you, when you look at it through those eyes. I feel like as you meditate on it and think about it, the Holy Spirit really shows you more and more of the beauty of the big story that starts at the beginning and before the beginning and goes to the end and the way it applies to you, the way it applies to your neighbor, how you can love your neighbors better. Um, But all vortexes around Jesus himself, because he is the word, the living word, and he is the the focus of the atonement, the focus of our life, the focus of history. And it all just focuses on him. And what's more exciting than that? That's exactly right. We're talking with Oceana Fleiss. The book is Awaiting the Manger, Whispers of Advent in the Old Testament. Um, I want to give you a little taste, a little sample of the the beautiful writing in this book, because I also want to share with you that we do have copies to give away. So if you're looking for an Advent devotional, text the word book to 877-933-2484, and um, we'll enter you into the drawing for the copies we have available today. Again, Awaiting the Manger. This is from Day 20, A Queen's Entrance. Sunlight broke through the slits in the meager walls of the home where Hadassah had lived since she was a child. Today she would become a bright bloom in the radiant bouquet of girls presented at the palace of the Persian Empire's king, hoping that perhaps the mighty ruler would find favor in her, choose her to be his new queen. Hadassah picked up a pistachio from the wooden bowl beside her, and then she set it back down. She couldn't eat. Her thoughts spiraled around the king, hungering for a new queen, and Surely it would not be her. She touched her simple dress and glanced down at her worn sandals. Most likely, she would be confined to live in his palace for the remainder of her life as one of a myriad of concubines, never allowed to marry or have a family of her own. Obviously, as this unfolds, uh, Oceana, this is the story of the one we know as Queen Esther. And the walk-off of this particular passage is Queen Esther didn't die, and through her act of courage— the Jews survived. When we think of the story of Jesus, it is a story of the preservation of a people, um, the unfolding of a promise. Maybe it would be fun to talk about Jesus as he shows up in a couple of these Old Testament passages. Do you have a favorite? Oh, you told that so beautifully. Thank you for sharing that. I 
I just love that story of Esther so much. Um, yeah, I do have a favorite. I love, well, I, I love them all. I feel a little guilty saying I have a favorite. But um, one that I really like to talk about is the story of, of Leah. I was just thinking about and praying about that story this morning, and it always gets me. It always resonates so much with me. Leah was the daughter of Laban, who was the brother of Jacob's mother. I made that a little complicated. So Jacob was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. And he had to leave uh, his father's land and go east to visit his uncle Laban because of um, his own kind of sin and fall. And he had quite a journey to get there. But once he gets to his father's land or his uncle's land, uh, he gets to a well where a lot of times they meet their brides. And there was this beautiful, amazing young shepherdess that he immediately fell in love with. And uh, that was Rachel. So he went to Rachel's father, who was Laban, and asked to be wed to her. And he said he could if he if he worked for him for seven years. So for seven years, he worked and labored to, to marry his beloved. And it said it went by just like a few days because he was so madly in love with her. And the day finally comes for them to wed. And if you, if your listeners know the story, it's very tragic and very dramatic that it wasn't actually Rachel that he wed, but Leah, who is said to have, to not be as beautiful as Rachel and definitely not be the beloved one that uh, Jacob was looking for. So, I really love Leah's story because as you go through and you find out a little bit more about her, we find out that uh, she really did love Jacob and she really wanted him to be a good husband to her and to love her. And it says that she cried out to God, to Jacob's God. Um, and there's a sense that she didn't really know God herself uh, at first, but she cried out to him anyway and said, God, if you could just give me a child, then my my husband would love me. And she's got this hole in her heart that we can relate to. We just want to be loved. We just want to have something fill us up and give us that deep desire of our heart to, to be accepted and loved. But she had the first child and it didn't work. Jacob didn't fall in love with her for her having that child. And so she cried out to God again and again. And three times she cried out and said, God, then my husband will love me. And yet, no, he never did. And mm. you kind of get this feeling that by the, after the third child, that she's sort of hit rock bottom where she's like, I don't know if my husband's ever going to love me. Is he ever going to be the husband that I long for, but she did cry out again for another child. And she, she said, just this time he'll love me. But by the time the baby came, there seems to be a change in her. Um, she seems to realize that this one Jacob's love isn't going to fill her up and it's never even going to really happen. And so instead, um, when she has her fourth child, she names him Judah. Mm -hmm. And Judah means praise. And she says, this time I will praise the Lord. Amen. And there's just such a relief in that and such a, we all try to fill our hearts and our, 
our emptiness with lots of different things. It could be our children or our love of our husbands or status, or it could be addictions. It could be so many things, but none of that satisfies. And having those babies didn't satisfy her either. But when she finally came to the end of herself, as we say, and realized that it was it was God that she needed, he had loved her all along. She had been loved all along, even though she felt like she wasn't, because God had always loved her and always been compassionate toward her. It's so amazing we can relate to that story. I can relate to that story so much. So many times I try to fill up with things that aren't aren't Christ, you know. But there's Amen. so much more exciting. <laughs> there is. It's wonderful. <laughs> we're gonna uh, we're gonna continue our conversation oh. with Oceana Fleiss in just a moment. We're talking about her book, Awaiting the Manger: Whispers of Advent in the Old Testament. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation now about Awaiting the Manger, Whispers of Advent in the Old Testament. Wonderful, wonderful Advent devotional. Um, Oceana Fleiss is here with us. You can enter to uh, win one of the copies that we have on hand. Text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. We were talking about Leah. We were talking um, about her son Judah. We were talking about the praise given to God. Obviously, we recognize the name of Judah. I mean, we recognize his storyline and the importance of that unfolding in the Old Testament. I actually want to maybe go back to the beginning. Um, obviously, these Old Testament whispers and these stories, they they lay the foundation for the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, and the genealogies like point, you know, point back in so many ways to that as well. Um, but I actually like where you begin. You you go before the beginning. So tell us where the story of Jesus really starts. It's it's so cool because you think where where does the story of Jesus begin? Where where does it begin? Does it begin, you know, at the the angels telling Mary and Joseph about his coming? But it's really before that. There's all the prophecies in the Old Testament, like um he'll be born in in um, Bethlehem and unto us a child is born. Um, but it's even before that, you can even go back to Genesis 3.15, which is the first time we hear about about Jesus coming, that the, the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. And we know that that points to Jesus. But really, it goes even beyond before that, which is so exciting and, and amazing about, it really reveals the character of our God. So if you look at Ephesians uh, 1.4, it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that even before all of this stuff happened, he had a plan. He loved us. It's, the next verse says, in love, he predestined us. He loved us. His whole beginning of everything before the beginning was all about his 
amazing character of love. So yeah, the story of Jesus starts long before we imagine, all the way back before the foundation of the world. Yeah, there's no way you could be chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world if Christ wasn't a reality before the foundations of the world. And so that's just such a that's a wonderful mm. reminder that Jesus is not just fully man, takes on flesh to dwell among us, full of grace and truth, but he is fully God. And if he weren't fully Absolutely. God, the rest of it would make no sense. And mm-hmm. and so I just, I love that. Talk about Emmanuel. I like the way that you unfold for us, not only who and what Emmanuel is, but more importantly, like why we set our eyes on him during this season. Well, Emmanuel means God with us. And it so succinctly encapsulates the whole my whole story. We I need I was separated from God. I was walking my own path. I was not in the fold. You know, the Bible talks a lot about sheep being being a sheep of his pasture. I wasn't in his pasture. I was out on my own. And we all are because of the fall. We all are separated from God. And we need to be with him again. <laughs> you know, there's that Emmanuel promise that is made, that God made this promise before the foundation of the world, like we said, that he would come and he would be with us again, that we would, when we were cast out of the garden of Eden, that he would come and take take our sin on himself, that he would give us his love and his grace so that we could be with him. And that is my story for sure. When I was separated, he came and rescued me and brought me back so I could be with him. Really, it's the whole story of the Bible in one word, that word Emmanuel, God with us. And what a great and kind and loving God that he would leave his throne above, you know, leave his glorious throne and come and live as a humble man, live on this earth, be rejected by men as well to come and live with us and be with us so that could be restored. Mm, that's just lovely. All right, um, Oceana, I have a, a one quick question here as we conclude our conversation. And again, Oceana Fleiss is um, the author of Awaiting the Manger, Whispers of Advent in the Old Testament. We are giving away copies today. Text the word book to 877-933-2484 to enter that drawing. Some of the stories that you include will obviously be familiar to a lot of people. There are, however, some surprising stories that we might not consider, um, you know, right off. So in in this book, um, is there something that that readers have said, I didn't know that was about Jesus? Mm. I, there's stories that I I didn't know. I mean, I knew it was all about <laughs> Jesus, but I didn't know how, right. you know. Some of them are just crazy stories that I didn't even really realize before. The, the birth of Samson. An angel comes to Samson's father and tells him, unto you will be born a child and his name shall be, I mean, where have we heard that introduction before? Mm-hmm. You know, um, his name shall be Samson. And uh, that story is just amazing how that unfolds and how cool. it, it so much parallels Christ's. And there's the the one with Elisha and the the woman, they don't mm-hmm. name her. But the um, the woman in the door, and <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. That she, you know, and and how that she enters into his Elisha's room, and in a sense, Elijah Elisha's room, and in a sense, she's entering into the presence of God through that. And we see that 
Jesus, you know, we can enter into his presence because he came down to earth. Um, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's Noah, so rich. There's, it's, no, 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 yeah. it's good. It's such a foretaste. Go we don't want to give it all away. I know, I know. Oh, that's that's, well, all of them are surprising, right? It's so great. Yeah, it's so wonderful. Yeah. What a joy to um, to get to talk with you, to, to meet you in this way. Thank you so much for the gift of this journey um, during Advent, awaiting the manger, whispers of Advent in the Old Testament. I'll go ahead and tell you it's um, it's a, it's an invitation to a rhythm every day of practice, reflect, pray, read, and sing. There are wonderful hymns in this Advent devotional as well, encouraging you to um, to sing your way from here to the Advent of our Christ. So discover Jesus in the Old Testament, awaiting the manger, whispers of Advent in the Old Testament. And so, my friend, what has you uh, wandering in grief or sadness today? Um, what are you focused on? And while you're focused on that, what are you missing of the one who draws near to the brokenhearted and walks with you even now? Again, I'm thinking about the walk to Emmaus. I'm thinking about how we walk toward um, the events of Christmas. Can you hear him? Can you see him? Do you recognize Jesus for who he really is? Um, do you anticipate his coming again? What is yet to come? Um, Allow yourself to hope anew in the goodness and the greatness and the grace and the glory of the living God today. We've got another hour together here on Mornings with Carmen. want to encourage you to um, turn your eyes upon Jesus today. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.